0: Well, it took the better part of a decade for publishers to convince Sir Wayne Smith to share his long rugby career in a memoir. And there's plenty to talk about. Across his career, Sir Wayne has been involved in 174 All Blacks tests as a player, selector and coach. Of those, 143 were wins. He's become the only coach to win three Rugby World Cups as assistant coach in 2011 and in 2015 with the All Blacks, and of course, helping capture the heart of a nation in 2022 as head coach of the Black Ferns. Earlier this year, the now rugby mentor became a knight companion of the New Zealand Order of Merit for his services to rugby. Finally, over two months hold up at his Waihee Beach Batch, Sir Waynes detailed uh, his uh, life in rugby to the writer Phil Gifford. And after editing lots of eyes and deweese, has just released Smithy Endless Winters in the spring of 22, 2022. So, Wayne Smith's in our Christchurch studio. Thanks for that and welcome.
1: Oh, morning, Catherine. It's a um, real pleasure being invited on your show. I've heard a lot about you.
0: Oh, that's, I hope it's OK, some of it anyway. Um, hey, look, congratulations. Another achievement, the book. And I know loose-head Len had to uh, pull out all his old kit and persuade you to do this, but um, it's a treat that he has. I wonder if we should begin. The, the All Blacks have just beaten Uruguay, what did I write down, 73 nil, And most likely now their quarterfinal opponents, Ireland, possibly South Africa, just depending on how games play out, to keep the World Cup game alive. What are the challenges at this stage? of a World Cup?
1: Um, well, I think they're answering some of the obvious challenges. You've got to get into form, clearly. You want players to be um, competing against each other for, for selection. I think that's happening. be interesting to see, you know, where they go selection-wise for the um, quarterfinal. And, you know, complacency is your enemy. So making sure that there's edge... In the team, um, I think probably that first result of the tournament against French has um, put the put the All Blacks on edge, and I, I'm really looking forward to a quarterfinal, maybe against Ireland, but I'm really looking forward to it because the All Blacks um, over the last period, whilst there have been some ups and downs, when they've had to prove themselves and um, and really play well, they've been able to front. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to a really good quarterfinal performance.
0: The carrying underdog status, they were anyway going into the tournament to defy the form of the past two years. Uh, An interesting word you use there, well, two actually. One is edge and one is confidence and belief. When you're coming off easier games like this and going back up against a tougher opponent who wants to beat you. We've seen some ill-discipline with the yellow cards and the red cards. We've seen, some of us would say, way too much kicking to nowhere. What are you looking for for the serious end of the campaign, if they're going to pull this off?
1: Well, you know, I, I think that first game against France has done us a favour, because as I said, complacency can be your enemy, and and one of the one of the issues when you're coaching the All Blacks is generally you win so often that um, it can become a problem, and. Uh, wise worry is is a really good way to go into a game, you know. Um, you don't want to be too worried but you gotta have some concern, some edge, some nervousness about about the outcome to to really be on edge and, and to play at your best. And I think they'll be in that position. You know, we've been there before. Um, unfortunately the top four teams in the world are all gonna be playing off in the quarter final and only two are going to go through. Um, but, you know, that's normally what gets the All Blacks up. So I think the whole country's expecting you know, a pretty big performance from them.
0: You, uh, you've always innovated. You've talked about courage. You did this with the Black Ferns and the style of play. The problem at World Cups is you come up against teams that often shut down that style of play, and we've seen that happen repeatedly. Could you comment, as much as you're prepared to, on how they should tackle these business end games. Do they need to run more, be bolder, take more risks, win or lose? Yeah,
1: yeah, I think there's a balance, clearly. Um, Our strength through 120 years of rugby has been our ability to reinvent ourselves and reinvent ourselves really quickly. So what I mean by that, whenever there have been law changes or changes in the style of a game... We've tended to adapt quicker than any other country. And I'm going back like to the originals in nineteen oh five when Dave Gallagher, the captain on the boat over, found a loophole on the laws that said you could have a player that played in the forwards or the backs and so he designed a position called wing forward. Now that's innovation. And I'd like I'd like to think that we're on that on that road. Having watched us play the last couple of games, now I know Italy Weren't at their best, clearly, but you know the the All Blacks were exhilaratingly good, and Italy were exhilaratingly bad. But regardless, had an exhilarating game, and I'd like to see. You know, I think it's our strength, and you talked about kicking, making sure we're not just kicking aimlessly down their throat. I think it's got to be a key. So, um, with with the attacking mindset of New Zealanders, you know, it's in our DNA. I think our kick should be attacking as well and we used a term um, with the girls last year, um, if you're going to kick, kick to each other so it goes straight to the hand or if you're going to kick for territory or space, kick where the seagulls are because you know where the seagulls is no human so that's, that's the place to land the <laughs> ball and so I think I, I bringing everything every part of the game together with an attacking mindset, that's the way we should go I think and it's, I think it's looking pretty um, positive for, for the All Blacks they seem to be on that track
0: That's that first five and you speaking again isn't it aim for the Seagulls and actually it's it's not a joke you, you talk in the book about now which player was it who used to set you up when you were playing for Canterbury um, because he'd stand shallow and, yeah. and then drop back and you were planning a play and he would be where you didn't think he was going to be or he would drop back and then sneak forward uh, that's the kind of detailed reading of an opportunity that players good players are making decisions about all the time
1: Yeah, that's right, the whole game is about shaping the enemy Um, you know, you go into any performance, the the All Blacks will go and say it's against Ireland they're going to play they'll have um, they'll work on an A, B, C D, E method of A, they're going to assume that Ireland are going to play a certain way but B is you, you believe nothing and see, is you've got to confirm it on the field and so if they are doing what you thought they were going to do then you, then you can make the plays that you've been practicing if they're not you have to try and shape them to make them play the way that you thought they were going to play so you can use the plays against them. So it's a very tactical game, that's a pretty short explanation about it um, but the guy you're talking about earlier in my career was Gary Hooper who I played with in Canterbury eventually but I was playing a club game against um, Marist who he was playing for and I'd sort of been taught as a, as a 10, you know, you've you got to look at certain things in the opposition to determine what, you're gonna, what play you're going to make. And so I'd look at um, where he was on the wing and he was standing deep. And so I'd think, oh, well, that's, that's our cue to run. So I'd pass the ball, then all of a sudden he'd be up there making the tackle. And then next time I'd see him standing flat and I'd think I'm going to kick so I'd kick him would be back there catching it. And so whilst I thought I was making the play based on him, he was shaping me to make the play that he wanted me to make. <laughs> and then being in the right place to to diffuse it. So it was a great it was a really great thing to learn from him early in my career as a player, but also something I've taken into my coaching career
0: you shape it as best you can, you shape it and you adapt and you have your plan B That's a right. good chunk of the book is dedicated to the Women's World Cup campaign and we could see your joy in, in being involved in this um, some might say after such an extraordinary career you saved your best till last in some ways um, and it was a bit messy the way you came to take on the Black Ferns You and Ted as is, he's is, 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 um, so fondly known, both were interested you were both offering to help the incumbent t- um, coaching team and uh, there was a series of resignations including the head coach and, and, and then it's you. And what made you take it on?
1: Um it's a good question. I I had actually offered my services to New Zealand rugby to help Glenn Moore, um, Johnny Haggart Wes, Wes Clark, who were the coaches, helped them with a bit of advice if if they wanted to leading up to the World Cup. Unbeknown to me, um, there was a mental health review being undertaken. And rightly or wrongly, um, as the report came out, um, there were some res- resignations, as you, as you said. Um, it was a really difficult period. Um, I came down to camp really to, to have a look and to give some advice if needed and ended up coaching the whole week. And I like got applied for the pension two days earlier. You know, and <laughs> I hadn't coached on the field for about a year Um, got home, had laryngitis, shouting at the girls, um, feeling a bit crook, got to the, the, about Tuesday and I said to my wife, Trish, I don't think I can do this. You know, um, they've all resigned. I'm sort of left in the middle. Wes Clark stayed. He, he was one of the coaches they had previously, Whitney Houston, Whitney Hanson, Um, she can't quite sing like Whitney Houston but I do that all the time. (laughs) (laughs) She went from a one day a week intern to head forward coach. And my wife gave me a big hug and said, You gotta do it. Like you can't leave them by themselves, there's no one else available. So you gotta do it. So that's that's really that was the situation. So I came came back down and got stuck in. Um, had some more help come on board. Mike Cron who I think is the best coach in the world he joined to mentor Whitney and um, help coach the forwards um, Graham Henry as you said became an advisor and uh, I guess uh, an instiller of confidence for the women. So we sort of had, a, we had different roles to what we'd had before when we coached together. He was always pretty um, created a lot of edge in the team and um, this time it was more. You're doing great, girls. Best trainer I've ever seen. You'll be the best team I've ever been with, and all that sort of stuff. And it just the girls loved him, and it really picked them up. A couple of observations. And then getting Alan Bunting on board was a real key for me because I was I was having to run the um, the identity and the culture piece as well as be the head coach, and it was a you know, massive workload. And he's he's been outstanding in the sevens space running that and, you know, he's won a Olympic gold he's won multiple world titles. So getting him to come in and take over that part of it was really helpful and and it sort of completed our team. Our, our staff became a high-performance staff all on the same page and it was a real joy to be involved with it, Catherine. Yeah, you know, it's been a real highlight of my life.
0: That's evident and the professionalism of that unit uh, is a evident and b so different from what these teams have had and and you know over many years in the past. Um, it, it brought it brought their preparation to a different level. I'll skip quickly through some of what you talk about in the book, and actually they talk about it themselves. Kendra Coxedge, D- Dan Carter, many others here that you've played with um, have comments in the book, and they were talking. I think it was about a passing drill. Initially, it was a pretty um, or a pretty nasty sort of drill, minute on, minute off drill. You know I might be conflating, but ball was being dropped all the time you know <laughs> and and they knew it um so it, it's evident the actual drilling and the skilling and the fitness and everything else came together. The other thing you were doing is mentally preparing them as you 've done with men 's teams, getting in behind the goal posts, needling and you know behaving uh, like a sledger from the other side that that kind of drilling also um was evident. But what would you say really got them to the performance level, the running and the passing, the performance level and the kind of almost spiritual level they reached as professional athletes? How do you explain
1: it? Um, it was a like initially when I took over, I, I used this phrase, ladies, we're going to win the World Cup in front of 40,000 at Eden Park but we're not going to win it today. We've got seven months, and we counted it down. Uh, We had to... There was a bit of logic involved, you know, and and rugby players um, and women are no different. You know, if, if everything looks logical, they'll buy into it. And so a big part of it was shining a spotlight on the sort of game that we needed to play if we were going to beat England and France in the finals now. They'd been massive against the Black Ferns the year before. They are professionalised. Um, Black Ferns had been, involved, had, had been restricted by COVID and a you know, whole lot of factors involved. But the girls believed totally that the game we were going to play would be exhilarating, but it would be difficult to learn the skills and the decision-making strategies that you needed to be able to play. It. So it was a lot of work and one thing that these women are superb at is work, and they are hugely dedicated to learning. You know, and we'd often get on a bus coming home from training, and someone'd get on the mic and go, "Girls, we were rubbish today." Uh, upstairs, 7:30 after after dinner, we'll go and Smithy's tactical mat, not a big rugby mat with numbered discs on it that you could move around. Up in the team room, um, we want to clear up some of these plays that we didn't do too well today. So I'd go up there with Whitney and Wes and Bunts and we wouldn't have to do much. You might get asked the odd question, but essentially they would be working on the mat, asking each other, so where do you move here? Where do you go? Um if they if they defend like this, how are we going to learn from that play? Where we're we going to attack next. And so that's how that's how we worked. And they gotta take a lot of credit for um buying into it and and been really, really committed to being outstanding at it. And, and the other thing was they were... They've sort of been conditioned to not make mistakes. A lot of rugby players have, you know, mistakes are bad. But if you've got a growth mindset, mistakes are good. If, if you're not making mistakes, then it's not hard enough, it's not difficult enough, and you're not you're not going to beat the best countries in the world by going in with a mistake-free mentality because it means... Mm. You know, you're not going to play the sort of game that we want to play. So we had to be accepting of mistakes. And some of the trainings were chaotic, you know. And we would, Thursday afternoon in particular, I was really hard on them. I'd red cards, yellow cards. I'd send them around the posts. I'd put them under pressure. They had to have coping strategies, know how to stay in the present, um, do the next task, do it well. Well, Smithy sent me around the post again, come back. It wasn't fair. Then I dropped the ball. Um, <laughs> You know, and you've got to replicate the pressures that they're going to get in the game, and that's what we did. And it was, it created a bit of conflict at the start. Like we'd sit around the circle, and I'd go, "Here you go, girls," and you know, you get feedback like, "Oh, you were just grumpy today. or I didn't like it when you did this, and I couldn't handle that." And but as we got through the the weeks and the months, they became experts at it without even knowing. And eventually when we played 15 against 15, you couldn't tell what the starting 15 was as opposed to the the non-starting 15 because they were that good. And it was just dedicated intent to training and playing that created that.
0: And the rest absolutely is history. Smithy is by Wayne Smith with Phil Gifford. Wayne Smith is my guest. You're listening to 9 to Noon with Catherine Ryan on RNZ National. 25 past 10 it is. You're noted for your innovations. It's one of the reasons they dub you the Professor. You began your coaching career in the transition to the professional era. It was nascent. You've been a brilliant Canterbury player, of course, during a great, fantastic era of Canterbury rugby as well. But how difficult, when you began coaching, how difficult to institute some of the innovations you wanted, such as bringing in the first sports psychologist. It seems crazy now. We look at the lineup of experts and add-ons to professional sides. But... You know, take us back to that kind of innovation at that time.
1: Yeah, well, firstly, Catherine, the Professor Monica was mad professor. It wasn't a positive, it was a negative. Um, I Look, I learnt my coaching um, under a guy called Laurie O'Reilly, who was um, a great mate. He was one of the top family lawyers in the country, soon to become... Um, was um, Commissioner for Children, um, government appointee. And he mentored me from a really young age for some reason. I don't know, look, he um, he rang me one day in about 1980, I think after I played against University, which was his club, and asked me if I wanted to come round for a chat about coaching. And I said, I'm only 22. Laurie, I don't know anything about coaching. But he took me under his wing and... um, And the whole philosophy was the safest techniques are the most effective techniques. So I grew up believing that, that if you teach safety, you're also teaching effectiveness. And that's something that's stayed with me all my life. Now, I learned, I became a coach or a player coach when I was in Italy. And I was exposed to a whole different way of coaching, a more um, French methodology of um, what they call global coaching it's really a game-sense type coaching. Um, so playing a lot of game activities, changing the size of the field, the number of players to create situations that they were going to have to deal with on the field. So it wasn't so much analytical skills-based stuff. It was play, 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 and change the rules to force them to play the way they needed to, to be effective. So I developed like that. Um, I was learning the language in Italy, so I started asking questions, I realised that if I asked a what question, because I for example, in Italian, means what did you, what did you do? It's pretty easy to answer, and you get a descriptive response. Then, what did you see to do that? What did you do next time? So it was helping my, it was helping my um, Italian, but I noticed that it was creating better self-awareness in the players, and they were they were improving quicker. And so when I came back to New Zealand. I decided I was going to be true to that style of training. Fair to say, when I started with Crusaders, it was a bit of a surprise to the players. (laughs) The way we were training, um, I'd ask questions and I'd get back, or just tell us the answer. (laughs) I'd go, (laughs) i tell you the answer, it's going to go in one ear and out the other. Um, I want you to tell me the answer. And So it took a while, I think the game, game sense stuff took a while to get used to. The public, I think, you know, they were used to someone like Grizz, you know, a a local hero, Grizz Wiley taking the team and being a bit sterner and, you know, having that um, rough exterior. He was actually an outstanding coach and he changed my career, but from the outside, he just looked like a gruff rugby coach. Whereas I wasn't. I was um, pretty quiet, um, had different ideas and different ways of doing things. So it, to be fair, it t- took a fair while to, um, for it to be accepted. Um, when I took over Crusaders, you know, we we did quite well in 97. They were last in 96. We did okay in 97. I went into 98 really, really positive, thinking we were going to do well. Had a good pre-season, um, looking really good, and then we last after five rounds. And that was a really... Um, difficult confronting time for me as a as a young coach, and I thought my career was over. Basically, you know, last only seven, we'd had our bye, but we still had seven rounds to play, and we we're on five points, I think, and the Sharks were on, I don't know, twenty three or something, leading the competition, and then to go from that, um, and I didn't really know what I was doing. I was I'm was still pretty young. I was committed to to my ideas. Um, and of course one of the big things as you mentioned was mental skills work and I'd always been told as a kid that the top three inches are what count but I'd never been told how to make them count and after meeting Gilbert and Noke, he changed me he changed my career as a rugby player because he helped me become a bit more consistent through some some simple sport psychology techniques so when I started coaching in New Zealand he was a uh, he was a given that he was going to come with me, and I wanted my players to to know what he'd taught me as a player. Um, now it wasn't accepted by the hierarchy. I had to initially I had to say that he was a masseur, and <laughs> I think the Canterbury Council sent one of their members up to a sevens tournament to make sure he was a masseur, not a not what they um, thought he might be. I had to send them over to the dairy to get some oil to actually rub the This is the prize. peanut
0: oil in incident, is it?
1: <laughs> What's that?
0: Is this the peanut oil incident?
1: Yeah, the peanut oil incident. <laughs> uh, you know, so it wasn't easy in those days to be innovative because the game was seen as a traditional game and it was coached a certain way and, and I was outside the square. Um, yeah, so, so it wasn't always easy. But anyway, it... Um, he became no, an institution.
0: Fi- yeah, and as, as you say in the book, Bert, we want you to massage them, not fry them. Um, yeah. Look, yeah. speaking of hierarchies, let's get to the, to the gnarly bits. Um, the, 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 the coaching and losing the coaching role, uh, 2000, 2001, and then replaced by John Mitchell and the journey. Talk us through that experience um, as succinctly as is, as is possible. Because yep. it's gut, it's you know, it's gut wrenching. And again, a, a an, you know, a coach at an a, a early stage, you take taken on this opportunity. You talk with your wife about it. You said this might be the only chance I get. Um, what went wrong, and what is your experience of how it was handled?
1: Yeah, um, like I've always taken total responsibility for it. So, two thousand, um, I came from the Crusaders, having won a couple of titles. Um, thought I was ready, uh, was put into a situation where um, I was the head coach of the All Blacks. I had a PA, um, I had a manager, and I had an assistant coach in Tony Gilbert, and that was us. And to, to handle the commercial and the sponsorship responsibilities, um, write strategic plans, um, deal with everything that an All Black coach has to deal with, with a, with a minimal staff was, was difficult, it was overwhelming. But anyway, I got into the coaching side, um, we started off really well, um, we, we played Australia in, the, in what they call a game of the century in front of 109,000 in Sydney, and we won that game. The, the rematch in um, Wellington was for all the trophies, um, it's on full time, the players heard the referee so next time the ball goes out, the game's over. Australia had uh, to drop out from the 22 because we'd nearly scored. We were up by two points. Larkin kicked long. Tony let it roll out because he'd heard that the, the game was going to be over, and they played another line-out. We got penalised in the line-out. Oh, no, sorry, we lost the line-out, got penalised at the next ruck, and John Eels kicked the goal to win it. Now, we were, Tony and I were three-quarters of the way down the stand just about had our hands on the trophy, and all of a sudden it was taken away from us. And so the next year, um, it was a very similar story. We get to Australia, got to beat, got beat um, Aussie again over there. We were four points up, I think, um, at full time. We had a penalty, kicked it into touch, down there 22, missed the line out. They attacked, 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 attacked. In those days, the referee determined the time. And, you know, I wanted the whistle to go, but I it kept, kept going, it kept going. There was a couple more line outs, quick line out throws, bang. And they scored under the post and kicked the goal and they, they won the match. So after two years we'd lost two pivotal games that would have changed would have changed everything for us. And as a coach, you've got to take responsibility for that. You know, we expect our players to perform well and if they don't they don't get selected and so ultimately I wanted I really wanted to be that person that took responsibility and I wasn't sure that I had the full backing of the union so I went to I went to a um, you know review with and the people at the review were great rugby men don't get me wrong these are these were some of the legends of our game Um, but looking back on it they all had similar views um, there wasn't enough diverse, diverse diversity I don't think in the way they thought and so it was difficult for them to come up with a solution other than um, he's shown a weakness um, all black coaches shouldn't show a weakness, don't think he can do it. So I went into a, I reapplied for the job, I still had the job but I decided to throw it open because I wanted to be certain that I had the support of the people so I asked them to throw it open, and I would reapply. Reapplied, went through the interview, and was deemed not good enough. So I'd answered the question that I had in my mind: that did I have support? Did or you didn't. Have the I, did, I didn't have the support.
0: So I hate to skip. Well, actually, it's good to skip over 2007. We all remember that one as well. And you write in the book of the backlash, the extraordinary backlash when the coaching teams were reappointed. Uh, reappointed. You were um, assistant coach uh, for this. So let's get to the the good stuff. 2011, my colleague and I were reliving I'm just reliving the John Eels. it was about 40, 40 45 metres that kick by by a lock <laughs> I can still remember that one, but um, as can you, we were talking about 2011 and recalling those final minutes and the, the, the All Blacks of possession sort of rolling maul up the field and just, you know a drop ball, a penalty in anything was the end of that match the yep. nerve to take that as a tactic. Um, what were the strategies, again you mentioned in this book, that won that match, that won that World Cup, what had changed by then?
1: Well we went into the World Cup sort of ahead of the rest of the world because of the way we'd been playing in in 1999 and, and um, sorry, in 2009 and 2010 it was different to the rest of the world. We went against um There were laws that really advantaged the team that was kicking, but we decided not to and It was based on Graham Henry a punt by Graham Henry looking into the future and saying the can't, game can 't go on like this IRB's going to have to change it otherwise no one will watch it, so we 'll just keep working on our attack, and at some point it 'll pay off, and it did so we 'd been way ahead, and then moving into two eleven teams were catching up um we 'd had a good one against France in that in the first round. And then meeting them in the final, um, you know, we knew it was going to be tough. We had some photos from their team room where they had all these um, press articles up on the up on the wall, calling them cowards. Um, worst French team in history. The team had sacked their coach, the coach themselves, and we were thinking, well, we're, we're in for it. Like this is going to be tough. Um, and it was tough, and we were fortunate to get out of it. Um, but we did, and we did so through some extraordinary leadership at the end because we were suffering like they were on top. Personally, I was pretty happy when they had the ball because I backed that defence, and I knew with, um, with guys like Richie on the field and Andy Ellis had come on, who's a great organiser of defence, I knew they would struggle to score against us. What I was worried about is when we were in attack, if we'd, if there's a drop ball or an intercept or something or a penalty against us, we were gone. So um, I watched the last 15 minutes of that game up by the water cooler because my ribs had taken a battering from, from Ted's elbow <laughs> as, we, as we were sitting there watching the game. <laughs> so I moved away... Uh, <laughs> But yeah, were, uh, you wouldn't want to go, you don't want to sit through that. I wouldn't want to sit through that again. And the world changed, Catherine, because really, if you think about it, from 2004 to 2011, like we'd won 89 test matches out of 103. That's, a, that's an extraordinary record, but we were still failures because we didn't won a World Cup. So we'd won Grand Slams, we'd won three Grand Slams, we'd won multiple Tri-Nations, we'd won every like Cup contest, yet we were hopeless because we had not won a World Cup and then a one point win against France seemed to change the world I remember going to the media conference and thinking wow, there's a whole different attitude here, whole different mindset towards us I walked out of that, this is in the book as you know, walked out of that media conference and into the um, changing room and the Prime Minister's there drinking out of the cup and as I said, the world just changed. It was phenomenal.
0: Wayne, as succinctly again as you can, because I've got to let you go. We've got a gentleman on the line from Papua New Guinea we've been chasing all morning and want to talk to. Um, and thank you again for a really enriching conversation. But I can't let go without this. You recently let rip at the state of the modern game, memorably <laughs> revealing that you'd switched over to a wildlife documentary rather than watch the second half of the Highlanders' Western Force. Just just, just bullet point. What's gone wrong with it? What needs to change, whether it's rules, refereeing? What would you do to it?
1: Um, I'd lower the tackle even further. Um, That would help with safety, teach good technique in the tackle, chin up, eyes open, head to the side, tight squeeze. It would avoid a lot of head-to-head clash. I think that's the first thing. The unintended consequence of that would be more opportunity for for the attacking team to offload, um, so more offloads will mean less rucks. Less rucks will mean um, less danger and more movement and more exhilaration. So I think that's one. Th- i I'm, I think that's the way world rugby will go. And I reckon we need to get there before everyone else. Um, also, I think we play the advantage too long now. From from um, penalties, we tend to come back, kick to touch, drive in more. It collapses, another driving mall, yellow card given, another driving mall, back to advantage, another driving all, then try. Um, we could probably cut that out. I'm not against them all, it's a unique part of the game. Um, but I think a bit more strategy and being able to use it, I'd if you're kicking for touch from a penalty, I'd have the defending team taking the throw in again like it used to be. Rather than the attacking team, that would that would create a lot more play and I think that's what the public want.
0: That's why they call you the Professor. Thanks so much. Enjoyed the book. Thank you, Wayne Smith. Smithy, Wayne Smith with Phil Gifford, is published by Moa, M-O-W-E-R. Some of you will know the other imprint well and truly.